If you've attended for the first time today, we're glad that you're here. It's been a while since you've been here. Welcome back. We're glad to have you here as part of the worship. We hope it's been encouraging to you so far that your hearts are prepared for the teaching of the Word. And it's with great joy for me as we really are beginning to, and it's going to be a lot of fun, I think, for all of us as we start a new study. We completed our first and second Corinthians study after about, uh, between the two, about seven years' time in those two books. And so we're going to begin our introduction of the letter from Paul to Timothy. We're going to be looking at First and Second Timothy and Titus. We've entitled that, Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. I'd like you, if you would, open your Bibles together. And uh, I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word today. If it is, that you're, you're starving this morning. But uh, that you're in each day reading through the Bible. It's very important to do it that way. And if you need some help, we do have a trifold out in the foyer. Pick it up, take it with you. That can help you get you through the Bible in a year. Uh, download version, if you would, on one of your tablets or your phone. You can have many of Bible reading schedules there that can take you through uh, the Word of God in a year. Just keep doing that as the Lord reveals uh, his under, uh, you, to you understanding. You'll, under, you'll begin to see these things that are very, very important for us to know. The richness of that reading will be yours. Uh, the understanding and discernment that you need for life will also begin to be yours. And so let me encourage you to do that. We're going to read the first chapter of First Timothy. We're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 20 just to get an idea of where we're headed. And so I'd like you to turn there. I'll give you some verse cues that can help you uh, stay together with me. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the, in the chairs or just read from the, the passage of the book that you study and uh, the translation you study and memorize, and we'll be fine. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertion. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully realizing that, in fact, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, verse 10, immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though, verse 13, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as the example, as the example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
This commandment, verse 18, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. There you get a little bit of a cross-section of where we're headed with this letter, and as you might well imagine as you read it, if you had any question, it's not woke. It will take on very difficult things that our culture would consider good and call them evil and make no equivocation about it. I think that you're going to see a lot of uh, really, really uh, equipping moments as we go through this, and I'm filled with real expectation of what we will learn together over the course of our time in these letters as we're going to see the purpose of Paul's letter to Timothy the overarching purpose in the book is to teach the proper ordering and conduct of the church. Paul clearly states this in uh, 1 Timothy 3.14. He said, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know, here it is, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So, of course, we can certainly make the, make the argument, even just from our study that we've had here of, of numerous uh, Pauline epistles, that they all take on the proper ordering of the church and addressing one topic or another. And specifically, as we've noted, uh, through Paul here to God's instructions for teaching, leading, and equipping the church to Timothy and to Titus. And we're going to look at these letters as we would any other part of the Bible with the solemn understanding that these are God's words. Um, we will examine it from an exegetical approach, which just means that's the process of discovering the original intended meaning of the passage. And then from an expository approach, which is the process of explaining and describing the intended means of the passage, and then we'll make application. How does that relate to our lives today? And it, in simplified form, I say this to you often, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply to me? That's the way we approach the study of the Bible. That's the proper way to go about that. And I say this again at the beginning of a new study because some may be with us and may be wondering about the way we do this uh, time together in the Word. And because many have not approached the Bible or heard the Bible approach this way, and if I just mark all the comments that I've had over 30 years of ministry of people who come in and say, that's the first time I've ever heard the Bible taught verse by verse, and I feel very sad about that. Many times they're in their 40s or 50s, so they've sat in churches all their life. They've never learned to read the Bible verse by verse. They've never understood that that's how it was supposed to be taught. But I would propose to you again that this is the way the Lord intends for us to study his word, that we may know his Bible words, whole counsel. Even in Matthew 4.4, if you remember, um, as Jesus is being tempted by Satan and told things that are contrary to what the Word of God says, um, he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by, do you remember the rest of it? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So if every word to Jesus that proceeded out of the mouth of God was important, then every word then, as we study it, would equally be important. And it's called the whole council. Paul, when he's leaving the church at Ephesus, where he, leave, where he eventually leaves Timothy to sort things out, he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. That's an interesting way to start how he's going to say this. He's got a group of people there. Some are elders in the church. Some are uh, uh, people who attend the church. And then he says this, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I didn't shrink from, mark this, declaring to you, here it is, the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So the idea there is, he wants them to take away the inference that, what, 
I've done this this way, you also be innocent of the blood of all men, teach the whole counsel of God. He made that his illustration. And when you pick and choose your topics to appeal to the consumer, or you just open your Bible and just read to wherever it falls open, that's a real problem. Because um, you're going to miss a lot of the important things, which are so vital that the Apostle Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I taught them to you, and I made sure that we looked at them. And so not teaching that way on the other side is a way to lead to very serious problems in the church, and particularly for those who are professing Christ. Which is why, again, we encourage you to read the Bible every single day, be in it every day, read through it cover to cover, so that you can know what it says. There's no way for you to know that, and you can spend all your, you can spend the most part of your life opening the Bible, just reading to where it falls open. And what you're going to find out is after 30 years of doing that, you won't know any more about the Bible than you did when you first started. But as you work your way through, you understand the mind of God, how he works with people, and you understand as it unfolds the story of salvation and how it works all the way through to the end, you begin to understand the things that the Lord wants you to understand. And you're going to read things you never would have read or picked out to read if you don't do it that way. And so Paul instructs the other pastors around him at that time, in essence, to do the same thing. And he told Timothy, as we're going to see later in his second letter in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. How can we do that? How can I do that, Paul? I'm not sure. Accurately handling the word of truth, making a straight cut. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And I would propose to you that worldly and empty chatter describes a lot of what goes on in pulpits today to the ruin of the hearers, Paul says, and to further ungodliness. So the whole counsel, then, is everything that God has, has to say in his word studied in a systematic manner as we've described in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 the esv english standard version which as i've mentioned to you before is a newer translation and a good one if you're looking for one that you can begin to memorize he says it this way but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with god's word but by mark this the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god this is paul's desire he said, I put away disgraceful, underhanded ways to go about ministry. I refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God. For the, con for the conscience of everyone who hears, Paul says, we want to inform the conscience correctly so that it speaks truth when you need it to speak. And just as a footnote, just to illustrate this, recently I was researching a church for a friend in another state. And the current message title, and I'm not making this up, this is a very large church, 18,000 plus people. The current message title is Jesus Christ Superstore. I kid you not. That's the actual name of the message. And unfortunately, they have their own little jingle, which I'm sure the worship team put together, to go with the online streaming promo, which showed somebody like in an Ikea with a GoPro on a basket, going very quickly through all the aisles. But the uh, jingle that went with it was My Own Personal Jesus. And as I listened to the sermon stream last week, it was just as bad as I thought it would be and with just as many mistakes as I thought would be there, both theologically and doctrinally. But that explains a lot to me, and it should to you, about the church culture today. Your own personal Jesus is very attractive. Come to the store, pick what you want to take away with you, but don't take anything you don't want. See, your own personal Jesus. Jesus is just there to serve you. And so then we have Christians who have embraced some parts of Jesus' teaching, but not other parts because we don't like those. But they call themselves Christians and do what they do, but they're not. See, they haven't understood what Christ requires because they only take what's comfortable. 
And that's a problem. Your own personal Jesus is very attractive. Come to the store, pick what you want to take away with you. This is the modern version of Paul's statement of the false teachers in Corinth who taught a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel, just in the modern context. And much worse because it's broadcast everywhere. If you remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said, we are not like many. Now, this is the first century. Already, many. We're not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And there's a lot of peddling going on today uh, to attract a consumer-minded individual. Churches set themselves up to be a consumer commodity and want to attract people to come in in a way that they're used to being attracted to go to a restaurant or go to a store or whatever. This is not the way the church is supposed to set, be set up. But this consumer-minded mentality then peddles, people peddle, and I would say that's the perfect definition of peddling, Jesus Christ Superstore, my own personal Jesus. That's peddling and practicing cunning and tampering with the Word of God. Those are all the things Paul said we don't do, all wrapped up in one little bundle there for one week for 18,000 plus hearers. So to avoid that, our desire then as teachers is to stand before God and His people and number one, proclaim His Word. Proclaim His Word. Every word's important. We just looked at that. Even the uncomfortable ones. Even the unpopular ones. Uh, and we have that as our stated purpose. We've exegeted the passage then. So when you come to the pulpit, when you come to your teaching time, you've exegeted the passage. You point out the significant words inside their context. You've applied some sound principles in interpreting the text. It doesn't just mean what you think it means. We never start a Bible study by saying, what does this verse mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you. It doesn't matter what it means to me. If I never lived and you never lived, it would still mean something. That original understanding is what we have to come to. And that's the principal effort that has to go into Bible teaching. What did the words mean to its hearers? And then we do that, then the principles spring from the text. We don't have to have three points and a poem to Force the text into three points in a poem to make it attractive to the hearer, see? The, the writer had something he wanted to say. The importance about teaching it is to figure out what it is he wanted to communicate and make sure that's communicated to the church because the church still needs it. And then our preparation will be such that as we teach the passage, we will be not preaching our own thoughts about God's word or mark this, this is what goes on all the time, using God's word instead of teaching God's word. That's what goes on. We use the Word of God to support what we want to say. So we proof text everything, and then somehow that's interpreted as teaching the Word of God. It isn't teaching the Word of God. We want to teach His actual Word. That's the whole counsel. And next, as we look at these letters, which tell us how to function in the church, particularly in teaching, leading, and equipping, we teach them correctly, then there should be, this is the second one, the right response. There should be a right response. Because there can be a peril going about it this way, which is having your hands and heart cauterized by holy things. What do I mean by that? I just mean that this is the way we always do it. So we're just like, okay, well, he got that right. I mean, this is what it says. And we forget that it had a message, and that message was supposed to be incorporated, and we were supposed to live it out. It's the old analogy of the train conductor, you know, who comes to believe he's been to all the places he announces because he's announced them so long and so often, but he's never got off the train to travel there. We have to travel there. And so... From both the preaching side and from the hearing side, we're required to embody the truth we understand. We're to be subject to it. We're to, we're to act on it, if you will. It's not just that we want to make sure we teach the correct thing. Once we know what the correct thing is, then we have to act on it. That's the responsibility of the believer and the hearer. So that's a serious responsibility, and I will say this, of the teacher to live out what he brings to the congregation. And if I'm ever not doing that, I need you to make that known to me. That's very important. 
So if it looks like I'm just being a hypocrite, I'm saying one thing and doing another, approach me privately and tell me that. Because it is the serious, it's a serious responsibility of the teacher to live out what he brings to the congregation and mark this, beloved, the solemn responsibility of the congregation to live out what's brought. You don't want to have your own personal Jesus or your own personal spirit or gospel or church. You have to do what the scripture proclaims no matter how uncomfortable that may make you. And although we'll never perfectly embody in this life the truth we preach or hear, we must be subject to it. We, we long for it. We make it as much part of our daily life as possible. It supersedes, market what we've thought before. So if you hear things here that supersede what you thought before, you've got to be willing to replace it. The habits we have, it supersedes the habits. How we've always done it, and all of those kinds of things. And all the more so as we grow. And then finally, as we think about biblical teaching and its application, there is this responsibility to have an earnestness and a passion about what's right. Paul told the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, he says, uh, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Remember that? We looked at that last week, actually. The ESV says it this way, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. In our, in our culture, the things we learn from the word of God fall on the outside world's ears, if you will, and even the ears of some who've named Christ as foolishness and ridiculous in the extreme. Even simply saying that, uh, what we've said about the Word of God and how it's supposed to be taught is regarded as foolishness. That's so boring. I don't want to hear the Word of God taught like that. I want, I want it to be fun. I want them to tickle my ears. Well, that puts you in a whole wrong camp when that's what you want, see. It's not that it, it should be dead. I mean, it's exciting, and there's an earnestness, and that's the whole thing. When you're teaching it and acting on it, there's an earnestness as part of that. Nobody's going to come to Christ if you're not excited about it. Are you excited about it? I mean, that's part of the excitement of realizing that your, your unrighteousness was above your head as high as a mountain, and Christ has carried all of it to the cross, and you're redeemed and free. And now you can proclaim that to other people. So what we're going to learn from the Word of God is going to fall against the culture in almost every way. And so there's this responsibility as we read and study the Word of God to act on it with some zealousness. I remember reading how uh, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, was a skeptic, and, um, he, but he would go and hear George Whitfield preach, and one time he's on his way, and he gets challenged by somebody who said, I thought you didn't believe the gospel. Hume replied, I don't, but he does, and he preached it with such zeal and such conviction and such clarity that Hume continued to be brought, brought there, and I think the Holy Spirit was drawing him. I don't think he ever came to faith, but he was drawn there to hear, and he saw the zeal and the earnestness and the joy and, and the uh, consistent seriousness about what does the word say, what does it mean by what it says, how does that apply, that drew him. And I think that's, that's got to be part of it. it. It's supposed to be this clear teaching which leads to doing and embodying the right things and all that done with earnestness, not with a long face. And it can be the, the clear teaching of the truth plus authenticity because you're living it out plus zeal that can make the difference in your life and those around you who are watching. If it's the real deal, it'll show. And I say all of this not because, um, not because you don't know this. I say all this as a reminder, first to me, because these are the things I was thinking about as I was thinking about a new study in my office this week. And I just thought, well, you know what? If I'm thinking about them, I'm just going to communicate them to you guys, and, and we can all be about this together. And, and, of course, some of you are not familiar with how we go about that here. And what I want to for sure not happen is that we waste our time here doing this what we do for no discernible reason. Like, you don't know why I do this, and you don't know why we do this, and why does this church do it this way? So I want to make sure that this was clear. Now, as we introduce these letters, so we're going to start looking at this very first part, 
of this letter as we understand why we're doing what we're doing and, and the approach that I'll take, uh, which is not new to you if you've been here a long time, but maybe new to you if you're new. But as we introduce these letters, First Timothy, along with Second Timothy and Titus, belong to a group of Paul's writings known as the pastoral epistles. And, and they are so named because they were addressed to two of Paul's dear sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus, who, as you might imagine, had pastoral duties. Timothy was in charge of the church at Ephesus and Titus of those who were on the island of Crete. And then along with Philemon, they're the only letters that Paul addressed to individuals. And so they're important. And like every letter penned by Paul, these pastoral epistles give us some insight into Paul's heart. We've noticed that as we went through First and Second Corinthians. We saw it in Romans. We saw part of Paul's heart poured out. And they're going to show us how he manages personal relationships with his close friends and his associates. He wasn't afraid to say things they needed to hear. And he also encouraged at the same time, this is, this is the kind of friends you want around you, ironing, sharpening iron, if you will. And, and they contained a wealth of information concerning practical matters of church life and organization, as we've poured it out, and public worship, and the selection and the qualifications of those who lead the church, and the pastor's personal life and what that has to look like, and public ministry, and how to confront sin in the church, and the role of women in the church, and the care of widows, and how to handle money, and there are many other questions that get answered that Paul, uh, Paul knew Timothy would need to know as he inherited a church that already had some difficulty, and so he had to make sure that Timothy understood these things. And besides the wealth of practical information they contain, the pastoral epistles as we've seen, Paul also passes on some important doctrinal truths here. We're going to know more about the scriptures. We've even just taken a brief sample just a second ago. And salvation and election and, and Savior and all the kinds of things that uh, Paul means to make sure that uh, Timothy knows. And I think it's important too to note that these are the last of his letters written right before his death. They are the only ones that happened right after his first imprisonment in Rome. The book of Acts, we know that does not record Paul's death, and so it appears that Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus right after his release, and these letters fit right in. Then at the close of the book of Acts, these letters would go right there and fit perfectly. Paul traveled to several churches after his first imprisonment, Ephesus being one of them, and as we just read just a second ago in chapter 1, he left Timothy there to deal with the problems that had come up inside the church. And so I kind of chuckle about that. There, you know, here's Timothy, kind of a newbie, and Paul, you know, he's an old hand, and they come to the church, and obviously there's some trouble. And Timothy's like, we'll work this out, won't we, Paul? He goes, nope, you will. See you later, bud. Pat you on the back, and poof, he's in the wind. And then he writes back and says, these are the things you need to do. But you can imagine the panic in Timothy's heart as he's taken on this church that has some trouble, and you're going to see the kinds of trouble it has. And so he goes on, and, and we've already mentioned some of the topics Paul deals with in this letter, and they're all to help him, Timothy. And, not just Timothy, every leader and church that came afterwards because they were not written in a vacuum, and of course they extended farther out, and they still apply, as we mentioned, and we're going to highlight those as we get to each one of those. And then, he wrote 2 Timothy during his second Roman imprisonment, and we get to see his life right up to its triumphant conclusion where he states in 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Now that we know a little of that context, and we understand that right after, shortly after that, Paul's head was taken off on the Apian Way, we understand that these, these letters are important. It's the last thing you're going to write. You have some things to say, and so it helps us understand them. Now, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, if you will. Paul, an apostle of Christ, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's stop right there. Let me make some notes here. 
And as this is normal for us, as we start a new letter, it's not surprising to you to kind of set the foundation. As you look at the beginning of the letter, and we've looked at letters like this before, if you want to memorize the first word in all 13 of Paul's letters, you can do it right now because they're all Paul. That's the first word in all of his letters. Not too tough. And, and when the New Testament writers wrote their letters, they didn't invent some new format to write them. They used the contemporary format for letters of their time, and that format is what you see here. Um, they would begin with the author and his identification, and then the recipient and his identification. So in this case, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So that's the author, and that's his identification. And that was the contemporary way that a letter was typically written. They started the letter with the name of the author, which, as I've said before, seems a lot more reasonable to me than the way we do it now. Because now when you get a letter, if it's not a business letter, you know, you get, it's a personal letter, you always flip it over and see who it's from. And having received lots of letters in the course of my time in the ministry, that helps, us, that helps me understand whether I need to believe this or have a way that I can evaluate it as I read through. So that makes a lot more sense to just know who wrote it right at the top, and then you're able to you know, figure out how to look at it and how, whether or not I should believe or you should believe what's being said as you read it. So in Paul's time, when they wrote a letter, they started off by saying, first of all, this is me talking to you. That's a really great way, very straightforward. I like that. And then the recipient and his identification, and in this case, it's Timothy, my true child in the faith. And then comes the greeting. And in this case, it's grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a really great way to greet somebody, isn't it? We've lost a lot of that, a lot of that warmth, a lot of that sincerity uh, in, in, in writing letters and even speaking to one another. And just to really mean grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, that's like greeting each other with a holy kiss. It takes away all the duplicity, doesn't it? It takes away all the, you're thinking one thing and saying something else. If you really sincerely mean that. I just really like that. That's a really great way to start uh, a communication with someone. Very simple format. So in a normal way, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and, and that's what it is. First of all, it's a letter from one man to another. And as we've said before, that one of the things you have to do as you begin a book is to set a foundation upon which to understand that book. While we look at as a book of the Bible, of course, and it's reached far beyond its original destination to Timothy, handed to him by someone who traveled up there. But in order for us to understand its application, we have to realize that it's a letter and we have to know what's happening in Paul's life and what's happening in Timothy's life and what's going on in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was then working and what was it that caused the letter to be written the way it was written. So these are very important foundational issues for us to be able to discern correctly what we should know. And we draw out of those things, things which are applicable to our own understanding, and it keeps us from misunderstanding and misapplying. As I've told you before, all the promises of God are true. They're just not all for you. So again, we're able to see these things if they apply to Timothy specifically, they apply to the church as a whole, ministers as a whole. These things become clear if we understand what the original intent was and who the recipient was and what was going on in each of their lives and in the church. So as we've seen before, it's a very typical format for the Apostle Paul. He establishes his identity and then immediately, look at verse 1, he establishes his authority as an apostle. Look back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Now, this is something that Paul did repeatedly 
and there are a number of reasons why he did this, and we're going to look at them in just a second. You don't find the other writers of the New Testament doing this in the way that Paul does. When John writes in 1 John 1, 1, he says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He doesn't say anything about being an apostle except by implication that he was there and he saw Jesus and he touched him and he walked with him. But he doesn't say, I, John, an apostle, but we know that he was one of the original 12, so he could have easily have said that. And then when he writes the next letter, 2 John, he says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, so he's writing as a pastor to a church, whom I love in the truth, not only I, but all who know the truth. And so he's one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, Trained by Jesus himself, he just identifies himself as an elder and a pastor of the church. So you don't see the same thing that you see with Paul. Now, when Peter opens his letter in Peter 1, 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. So Peter says it and then moves right into the recipient, and he doesn't dwell on it. Now, In the New Testament sense, and this is important to make this distinction, the word apostle is used of one who was an ambassador for Christ carrying the gospel. So somebody sent with a message. And there are many apostles in that sense. Barnabas was called an apostle in Acts chapter 14, verse 14. He wasn't part of the 12. And there are others in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He lists a number of them off there. It's not just restricted to Paul or even to the 12. There are apostles in the New Testament beyond the 12 who were sent with message, uh, the message of the gospel. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6, 28, or 2 Corinthians 8, 23, they're called apostles of the churches. And that's a very important distinction. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, Epaphroditus is called an apostle of the Philippians. So there are apostles in a very general sense of messengers who bring about the message of the gospel. Now, in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, mark this. Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, mark this, who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So here's two guys, they're in Christ before Paul, and they're outstanding among the apostles. Andronicus and Junia are called messengers, and they do an outstanding job as an ambassador or an envoy of the gospel. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul's giving a history of his training, and he says this. He says, Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, of course, that's Peter, obviously one of the twelve, and an apostle of Christ, and stayed with him fifteen days. And he gives this clue, verse 19, But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So now he pulls James in, and if you remember, as James writes his his letter, James 1.1, 1, 1, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So James identifies himself as a bondservant. When we looked at all those words, that's an under-rower, someone intentionally willing, servant of God and of Jesus, somebody who puts themselves in that position. That's everybody's position. James willingly says, I'm an under-rower, a willing slave of Jesus Christ. Of course, Not all the apostles wrote in the New Testament. And James, the Lord's brother, wasn't one of the original 12, except Paul calls him an apostle. In fact, uh, he wasn't an apostle of Christ, obviously. In fact, James didn't even believe in Jesus, in Jesus' early ministry. And there were already apostles at work, apostles of Christ, doing the work before James came to faith. 
But he's called here an apostle in the broader sense of one who is an ambassador of the gospel of Christ. So they would then be apostles of the churches, and James would follow uh, there. There were the original 12, with the addition of Mattathias, when Judas was disqualified, and then there was one other named Paul. And we've looked at this quite extensively, so I won't spend a ton of time here, but they're not apostles of the churches. They are apostles of Christ Jesus, and Paul makes that very, very clear every time he announces himself. They're unique apostles. These men were different than the apostles of the churches. They were, these men were not sent by the churches. They were sent by Jesus, and they were taught by Christ himself. As Paul says of himself, as we'll look at that next week, he spent much time out in the desert, and Jesus actually taught him. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, just a little earlier in Galatians, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. So the church didn't send me, people didn't train me, for I neither received it from a man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul emphasizes that a lot. And we see that at the beginning of his letter in Timothy. And, and there appears to be some very specific reasons why he does this. So let's look at them. Look at verse Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So he identifies himself as a messenger of Jesus because God commanded it, and of course then Jesus also commanded it. And it is both of their expressed wills concerning his job for the kingdom. God and Christ both expressed their will that Paul be an apostle of Christ. So we know that Paul's not doing this in order to gain self-glory, and um, we know enough about Paul, I think, to know that he really despised any of that self-glory, but we like to put a lot of titles in front of names for numerous reasons. But the purpose doesn't have to be glory. It doesn't have to be vainglory. It actually could be establishing some authority. And so if we translate that to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's not saying, I'm an apostle, be jealous. He's saying, I'm an apostle, and there's authority in this position. Please listen to me. I have authority, and I speak with authority. And what I'm about to say to you comes from Jesus Christ at the will of God, for therein lies my calling. So it has nothing to do with vanity. It has nothing to do with self-glory. He totally disdains all of that and all personal merit, and we've certainly seen that clearly from 2, Timothy, so we, or 2 Corinthians, so we don't have to go back there. But in 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, remember? I don't deserve any of this. I am what I am by the grace of God, and we just read that he says that again in 1 Timothy. And so it's not for prideful reasons that he calls himself an apostle, a sent one, an ambassador, an envoy, and a messenger of Jesus Christ. So first, it is to give authority to what he says. There's your first step and why Paul does and starts his letters like that. And secondly, it also identifies his relationship with the 12. And just to explain that briefly, as we've already alluded to, there were originally 12 disciples. One of them was disqualified. His name was Judas. His place was taken, according to Acts 1, by a man named Mattathias. And the ranks of the 12 then were completed and filled up. They became the foundation of the early church. They became the authoritarian group. As you come into Acts chapter 6, we see that. And it is the apostles that are really running the church. Even in Acts 2, the people were studying. It says the apostles' doctrine, that, and that's the apostles' teaching. So the apostles laid that foundation, and we saw that in one of our questions last week. Uh, what does it mean to bind and loose? We looked at the apostles and their foundational work in the church. The 12 were known by the church as authoritative voice of Christ. Now, on top of that, here comes this nucleate on the block by the name of Paul, one he says born out of time. So he came after all the others, and his name is Paul. 
and one who at first introduction to the church was breathing out threatening words and slaughter and just being a real pill and causing the church no end of trouble like a, just like a bear just roaring around and killing Christians and maiming them and throwing them in prison and doing all kinds of things against the church. And when people were executed for being a Christian, he was in hearty agreement. And we understand he was there even when Stephen was stoned. He'd not lived and walked with Jesus in his pre-death years. He'd not seen the resurrected Christ before he ascended to heaven. And the qualifications for an apostle according to Scripture in Acts chapter 1 were that they know Christ in his post-resurrection reality and that they be specifically and personally and directly chosen by Christ. These were the apostles of Christ. So, they had to have seen the resurrected Christ and be called specifically by him. And we've looked at this. But this is one of the reasons why we can't have any apostles today with this kind of authority. This is the era of the Catholic Church. This is the era of those who on their signs say apostles such and such and, and uh, his wife or whatever. Anytime you see that, you understand it's not possible for them to be in that position. That's false. And so you, it's highly suspect everything that comes out of their mouth. There's no vicar for Christ here. There's nobody who speaks on behalf of Christ. None of those things because nobody meets that subset. There couldn't, and, and, that's, and that's the reason there couldn't be any any of these past the biblical ones because no one since then has seen the living resurrected Christ and been specifically commissioned by him he's ascended into heaven and that's where he is until he comes again and that's why he says here as he says in every single letter I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus the 12 were chosen by Christ and Paul was chosen by Christ a chosen vessel he says the Lord said to him remember he was on straight street and uh, and the guy comes and wants to give him his eyesight back and I'm he's a chosen vessel of mine I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for my name's sake to bring the light to the Gentiles and and they were not only were they chosen and sent by Christ but these apostles were witnesses of Christ personally witnesses of his words and his deeds and his resurrection and as we have seen Paul qualified because he saw Jesus in glory on the Damascus road and Paul was taught by him at least two other times in visions that God gave him where Jesus actually came and gave him instruction. So they were all eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, specifically taught and sent by him, very important distinctions, and just a few others as we close. These apostles were gifted uniquely by the Holy Spirit to impart divine truth. It was to them that Jesus said in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then in John 15, 26 through 27, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have seen, you have been with me from the beginning. So as we've noted then, as we think about this first part of this letter, this is an important Lesson for today's modern false claim to apostleship. These guys, and they were men, and we're going to see more about that in distinction to the church later in our study, but they were all men. No, no women were apostles. No women were pastors. Okay, and we're going to see this in Timothy, uh, but these were all men who were called and trained and sent by Christ, messengers of Jesus, who saw Christ, heard his words, and saw him after his resurrection. And mark it. Unlike the other apostles sent by the church, these guys were uniquely gifted by Christ for the proclamation of divine truth through direct revelation. And that's the whole point of John 14, 25 and John 15, 26 and 27. And then lastly for today, they were apostles who had the ability, as we saw last time in our Q&A, to cast out demons and heal the sick. And that was part of our Q&A last week. Uh, they had the ability to do signs and wonders and mighty deeds, uh, which are called in 2 Corinthians 12, the marks of an apostle. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, they were able to do signs and wonders and manifest gifts of the Spirit as confirmation of the messenger and of the message that they preached. 
They were foundational, and they confirmed the message, and the messenger that was part of the foundation of the church not having to be reestablished again. So we pointed out again that uh, these were for the early church, and these things discontinued because you only lead the day the foundation one time. That's Ephesians 2, verse 20. They were foundational. According to the will and purpose of God through Christ, even Jesus himself said, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe what I've done. So even Jesus himself verified that he was the Christ, the Messiah, by the things that he did. And so this is all through the purpose of God and through Christ, who is the head of all things the church. So the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so Paul then, in simply giving this title, an apostle, that wouldn't tell us as much as we need to know, as you can kind of see this. And so he adds an apostle, not of the church, but of Christ Jesus. Now, we're out of time, so we're going to pick up here with Paul next time. And, and if you were with us for the beginning of any of our other studies of Paul's letters, some of this will be familiar to you. You will recognize some of the things we've looked at. I think it'll be a blessing for you, though, to look at it either way. It's going to be important. It's instructional for us as we evaluate the claims of church leaders today. And, and we'll see another reason why Paul emphasizes his apostleship. It has to do with his connection with Timothy. As Paul said to the Corinthian church, you are my letter written to all men. We're going to see this as very, very much the same as Timothy is called into the ministry as part of that apostleship and authority that Paul has. We'll look there next week, Lord willing. All right, let's uh, bow and be dismissed in prayer. If you would, bow with me. Father, we thank you today for the blessing that it is to know you and to be a part of your kingdom. We're grateful to you that um, we can see these kinds of things and we can be blessed by them, understand what they say, understand uh, what the intent of the passage is because we understand who it was written to and why it was written. And Father, this is what you desire for us to do, to search out these things, to know them and then to do them and be excited about them because they are your very words. So even in that, uh, even in that just short synopsis, what a blessing that is for us to dig into a new, a new letter. And I know our church here is very much in the word. We are very grateful for people who read it every day. It's obvious in the way they conduct themselves, the things that they say, their stability, and the way they give themselves away. So faithful people, Lord, you've put here for us to minister together with. What a, what a joy that is. I pray that they will do so all the more. And as we see the things that we're gonna, you're going to reveal to us and teach to us out of First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus, Lord, help us to put those things on and be more like your son Jesus as we wait for his return, doing the things he says to do in the way that he says to do them. Father, as we go out from here, help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and then to give the gospel to every creature. It's not to forget the reasons why we're left here and be about that, the blessed news, of the gospel that we've been given. Right? We'd be faithful to give it to those you give us opportunity to witness to. And we pray all that in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.